0: Yeah, we're, we we like we have uh,
1: backups. We love net net Netflix quality um, productions. Okay, well, in which case, let, let's kick off. So um, we've we've had a, a couple of technical problems with the stream. So now we're going to go pre-recorded instead, which is absolutely fine. So um, we're going to talk about quite a few things today. Now, one big theme I think is talking about an and the kind of compatibility uh, between the free energy principle and an activism. Uh, we're going to talk about. Um, uh, now we have to be very careful how we pronounce this word. It's autopoietic, is that right, Maxwell?
2: That's right. Yes. Amazing. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk Forgive about. Forgive me when I get it wrong.
3: I'm
1: going to get it wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> so we're talking about autopoietic uh, and activism, which of which, of course, was the brainchild ch- uh, of uh, Varela and um there's an interesting paper that came out which was actually quite critical of of fep but we're going to talk about some of the points in that paper and that was called laying down a forking path tensions between Inaction an and the free energy principle and in that paper there were a few areas so there was the definition of auto uh poesis historicity so we'll talk about um temporal sequence invariance and non-steady state equilibria and what it means to be ergodic um there was this uh, critique about the non stationarity of distributions, and also a really interesting discussion about internalism versus externalism, because of course the, the inactive view is, is is a form of externalised. Um, cognition, which is this very interesting view that you have cognisizing elements outside of the mind in, in the environment around you. So we'll talk about that as well. We'll touch on goal directedness and also structure learning, which is uh, a really, really exciting thing in, in um, any, any Bayesian cognitive framework. Now, on the call today, we have obviously, first of all, Professor Carl Friston, the inventor of the Free Energy Principle and Active Inference, a man who requires no introduction whatsoever. Professor Friston, welcome to the show. Great to be back. Fabulous. Uh, We also have Dr. Maxwell Ramstad, one of the top scholars in the Free Energy Principle and the Active Inference uh, literature. Of course, we've had Maxwell on very recently, but welcome back, uh, Maxwell. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Amazing. And we also have a a new face. uh, Professor Buckley, would you like to introduce yourself?
4: Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, my, uh, I'm a faculty member at the University of Sussex, but I also work uh, with Versus, uh, with Maxwell uh, and Carl. So I have a background uh, originally in physics, as a postgraduate in, um, in physics, and then moved into cognitive robotics. So I was kind of uh, working in behavior-based robotics uh, and in activism uh, somewhat early on my, uh, my PhD. Moved into kind of theoretical neuroscience I kind of really uh, got interested in the free energy principle about uh, eight or nine, is it nine or so years ago and wrote a review on it. Uh, originally, uh, you know, wanted to challenge it and then eventually fell in love with it and now think it's the right way to go for it, for, for, for what we <laughs> want to do. Uh, so, yeah, I came as a sceptic and, and then I've been bashed into into, into place. Uh, I do think now this is, uh, is, is the correct way to think about things.
1: Amazing. Well, let, let's let the bashing commence <laughs> well, well, we'll move straight on on the subject of inactivism. So there was this paper laying down a forking path, tensions between inaction an and the free energy principle. And um, the name is very hard to pronounce. It was Esquiel uh, de Paolola. Paol- Ezekiel. Paolola. Ezekiel. Is that- Ezekiel, Ezekiel okay. de
0: Paolo, yeah.
1: Okay. Thank you so much for that. Now, um, now to just, just to be fair to them, because uh, Maxwell, you did actually couch FEP as an activism 2.0, uh, despite the an rejection of um, information methods. And um, maybe we should start by defining an activism. And, and also, there's some similarities with this other idea called ecological psychology. Mm. Um, so why don't, why don't we just start by framing some of these ideas up? That sounds
0: good. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Did do, do you so, have a like a pre-prepared definition you wanted to share or do you want us to riff on this?
1: Well, why don't why don't we start with uh, Varella's inactivism? So there are some so so Ooh. it's um in terms of philosophy, there are hints of existentialism and phenomenology and Eastern influences and focus on lived experience and, and stuff like that. One of the, um, the core things is that they reject information processing and computationalism. They focus on actions and interactions. They're, um, it, it's a very embodied tradition. So why don't we just kind of start with that?
0: Okay, yeah, that's a great way to set it up. Well, I I mean, we should, I, we should probably just add a little bit of uh, context and a few caveats before launching into this. So I think uh, Chris and I uh, are of the generation that, that was trained in the inactive embodied tradition. Uh, I would describe myself as a reformed inactivist. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if Chris, you uh, resonate with that. I'm still an that. activist. I still believe in, in, in activism, yeah. Um, so uh, these, uh, it, it, the inactive approach is one of the so-called 4E approaches uh, that, that have become very popular since the 90s and I would argue is uh, at least in, in the more philosophically informed corners of cognitive science and neuroscience, uh, basically the dominant uh, theoretical paradigm right now. Um so uh, it we have to say there's a this is a broad church of approaches that that go from um a more kind of minimalist uh recognition that cognition involves bodily processes to uh the more radical approaches that you were describing uh earlier that just uh it wholesale reject uh, information theory, the computation, the computational metaphor for mind, that m- mind is basically a kind of computing device. Uh, and uh, yeah, the, the inactive approach grew out of autopoietic theory. Um, they're distinct. It's important to say so. um Autopoietic theory was developed by uh, Maturana and Barela um, sometime in the uh, 1980s and uh, 90s. Um, and it was uh, a very uh, mechanistic approach to uh, mind. I mean, uh, you know, the, some of the early kind of flagship papers in tr- in this tradition are um, what the frog's eye tells the frog's brain and this kind of stuff. So, you know, hard-nosed kind of systems biology type thinking. Um and uh, I mean, th- there was basically a break in the literature where um, uh, m- uh, due to Varela in-, in a lot of ways, uh, the emphasis uh, moving from kind of mechanistic models to phenomenology to a kind of more dynamic, uh, coupling, interactive kind of mode of explanation. Um, so, yeah, the uh, inactive approach is basically committed to this idea uh, fundamentally that uh Cognition is basically bringing about a world, a structured world of meaning and significance uh, through adaptive appropriate actions left in the world. So um, the uh, the slogan is, um, you know, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, constructing uh, this meaning, uh, uh, you know, laying down a path and walking, I think, is the the slogan, the poetic slogan form uh, that's so uh, popular. Um, yeah, and in, in its more radical inclinations, uh, this inactive approach says um, dynamical systems is really the, the way to study uh, systems that have mind. Um, and so the kind of the background assumption there is that there is a fork in the pa- in the road somewhere, you know, uh, where we have to choose between information theory and dynamics. Um, and yeah, they, they obviously go down the dynamics path. Um, so I think that's a setup. Um, uh, and before launching into criticism, I should say that we, we as a community genuinely appreciate and benefit from friendly, critical engagement. Uh, so I just want to caveat all this by saying that the criticism comes from a place of wanting to build community, uh, from a place from our hearts, basically. Uh, and, uh, yeah, although I'm going to be saying a lot of critical stuff about the inactive approach, uh, uh, in my heart, I'm an, an activist. I think just that the um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the, the the methodology and explanatory constructs uh, that are leveraged in the approach are problematic. And in particular, you see this come out when the free energy principle comes into play. Um, so,
2: so Chris, uh, do you do you want to add anything to that that definition? Yeah,
0: now? I mean,
4: I, I guess it's like I, I see. I'm going to use this kind of phraseology. It was in. Uh, uh, in one of Carl's books, which is a, a low road and a high road uh, an activism. I, I basically was brought up a, a low road and activist, right? So this is kind of rejection of representationalism uh, in cognitive architectures. It was a move away from good old fashioned artificial intelligence to embedded and embodied agents. So this is kind of the origin in, in Rodney Brooks's behavior based approaches to, to robotics. And those are the kinds of ideas uh, I still embrace. And then there's the kind of high road uh, an activism, uh, which kind of embraces autopoiesis and operational closure at its heart. Uh, and I, I mean, uh, to to me, I, I mean, if, if you're if you're a high road, an activist, they are the same thing. They are they come from the same place. But I think there's a kind of there is a there are messages to take from an activism and the low road, which are super important for cognition. Right. Without kind of going into the depths of the or, uh, autopoiesis. Just in terms of like the language, I think um, I, I think there is a split between dynamical systems theory, which is kind of the origins of uh, descriptions of auto systems and information theory. But there, that community has begun to embrace, you know, a little bit of, of information theory. But it tends to, uh, uh, has been done through kind of phenomenological models, simple models, rather than kind of have this kind of uh, theoretical angle or, or deep uh, theoretical basis in something like Bayes that, like we do. Right? I mean, to I, mm-hmm. so that paper, I, I, I read it before we come, I, to me it doesn't seem, I, you know, some of the language is quite dismissive, but to me it seems an opportunity to see uh, whether we can re- reconcile these frameworks. And I think they've done a nice job in pointing where, there are maybe things we can express better within the free energy principle that kind of address things like operational clo- uh, closure. I feel that this community sometimes feels like it has to be divided, uh, but I, I, I'm I'm very much a, 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 an inclusive uh, person. So I, 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 I think some really nice dialogue between uh, people in activism and uh, what we do in the act- uh, in active inference and the free energy principle.
1: In, interesting. I mean, I'll, I'll bring uh, Professor Frisian in, in in just a second. But I, I was reading this very interesting paper by by Maxwell, uh, written in um, I think it's twenty nineteen. Multiscale <laughs> integration beyond internalism and oh, it's twenty one. Okay, sorry, it was, it's the um, the, the, the multi scale in, integration paper. And you know, of course, this this um, um, an active philosophy is is all about externalism. So you know, you actually have these cognizing um, elements outside of of where the brain is, and in a way, it's. Um, Uh, there's this helm sharp separation between the organism and the environment, which is perhaps embraced by neuroscientists. But the interesting thing about the free energy principle is is, is I think it, it maintains some vagueness about... This notion of whether it's an internalist system where you have strong representations and uh, predictive power about what's going on in the world around you um, versus being this kind of um, dynamical externalist inactive type system. And in that paper, Maxwell, you are saying that, well, actually, we can integrate the two views because you can have these nested boundaries and as Professor Friston has said, um, human minds, the reason we have this temporal depth of planning and sophistication and representation building and so on is because we're at the top of the stack. But there's many, many layers below us where perhaps it is more of a, um, an, an active externalized form of, of cognition. So we can kind of speak to both worlds. But Professor Friston, perhaps you could come in on that.
3: Yeah. I was frightened you were going to ask me if I had anything to add about inactivism, uh, because I haven't. Uh, I'm here to find (laughs) out whether I'm an inactivist or not. So at the end, if somebody can tell me whether I'm an inactivist, (laughs) I'd be very grateful. There's probably some nuanced version of it, like a moderate epistemological inactivist. So I think... um, That last point, Tim, um, I I think is a really interesting one. And in fact, I just reviewed a paper for Synthese yesterday, I think, touching upon this issue from a philosophical perspective. Um, Put very simply, uh, the free energy principle basically will accommodate both perspectives. It rests upon an externalist view of the universe as a random dynamical system that just by equipping that system with a partition that separates something from everything else then induces an internalist uh, explanation for the way that thing makes sense of its universe so there is a a necessary immeshing of both the externalist and the internalist perspectives uh, you know put it another way the internalist perspective is entirely licensed um in terms of the interpretation of self-organization as a process of inference and you know, with that an explicit commitment to a certain kind of representationalism, but that only inherits from the you know, where you start from, which is an externalist view of the thing in an external world with with a, with a particular metaphysics here described in terms of random dynamical systems. And it's interesting also you pick up on this, fork in the road, which I confess I completely, uh, I do not understand, Um, you know, all interesting information theory read as probability theory um, that is used uh, in physics inherits from dynamical systems, um, you know, we're talking right. about thing ranging f- uh, things ranging from the master equation through to Schrodinger's wave equation, um, the Fokker-Planck equation, Comrade-Ford equations. All of these are information theoretic treatments of dynamical systems. So I don't really understand the nature of this fork, um, so I, pro- I probably should now pass it but back. to
2: well, can maybe I, through. can I follow up on that Chris? And then, and then maybe you can answer it. I don't get it either. And so what, what confuses me about it is, um, one of the, the brilliant things about the free energy principle to me is this exact connection between random dynamical systems of a certain degree of complexity, let's say approaching autopoetic, right. And, and this behavior that they must manifest in order to, to be what they are. Right, which is which is this balancing between between, you know, uncertainty and prediction and, mm. and that sort of thing. So to me they're they're hand in glove. And so I guess my question to you, Chris, since you were gonna jump in there is what is the source of this conflict? Like is okay. it a fear that if it's link if you link the information and, and dynamics in this certain way that they have to conform to this principle that we're all gonna be put out of work or we're not gonna be able to study
0: the things we wanna study okay, or Chris, what? Just, do you mind if I yeah. just quickly interject with a little bit cool. of context? Sure. Okay. Um, just to, I wanted to elaborate a little bit on what uh, Carl said because I think there, there were some things in here that might mo- in, in what Carl said that might not be clear to uh, the audience so that bears repeating. Um, the first is that uh, there's this idea that markov blankets kind of seclude the organism uh, from the environment. This is sort of like the Helmholtz style. Story where uh, our relationship to the environment is in some sense only indirect, and we are separated from the environment by our Markov blanket. The important thing to point out is that just definitionally, the Markov blanket comprises the set of degrees of freedom that separate and couple systems together. So it's 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 not the the veil; it's the interface. So that's the first thing to point out. Uh, so. Uh, a radically internalist interpretation of the free energy principle doesn't work because you actually need external states to be in play for the math to work. If there are no external states, then there's nothing to track and there's nothing beyond the Markov blanket. So you don't get the story started. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't get off the ground. Uh, If you don't assume that there are these things that the, particle in question that the thing that you're interested in is a a tuning to. And so there needs to be something to couple and to be separated from for the story to get off the ground. So uh, yeah, it's a, if you write down your dynamical systems equations, it's always the generative model that we keep talking about is defined over your internal blanket and external state. So that's the first point. What Carl is saying is the
2: other, the other way around too, which is if you're empty of all internal states, and and you, every single state you have can be influenced from the outside. Well, there's less to talk about. Well, then right? you're not a thing,
0: strictly yeah. speaking, right? Uh, that so you know the it's it's definitional to what it is to be a thing to have this kind of interface between that thing and other things. So that's a first point. Um, so. The, the internal states, as you're, as you're pointing out, do play an asymmetric role. So the FEP says if you have this boundary, then the internal states are going to parameterize a belief about external states. So you do get this kind of internalist looking thing going as well. So the, there is, a, I think, a, a kind of reconciliation of internalism and externalism under the free energy principle. This is what the 2019 paper that you uh Uh, are referring to is about it's called multi-scale integration and that's precisely the idea The things that look separated at one scale can be integrated within you know the auspices of an overarching structure at the scale above and so on and so on and so on we're separate as uh, individuals but we're coupled in this active inference community and you know arguably there's an intentionality also at play there uh, same thing for our cells, right? Our cells are separate because they have their individual boundaries, but then they're integrated on the time scale of m- me as an organism and so on. Um, so that's, that was about internalism and externalism. I wanted to speak quickly to the split between dynamics and information theory. Uh, whenever I talk to my friends in high-end mathematics about this, they are always as perplexed as, you know, Keith and Carl, you are because it's a nonsensical starting point. Um, To do dynamical systems theory seriously, you at some point are going to need to appeal to information theoretic uh, measures. So, for example, uh, distances in state space. So, you know, the inactivists are all, you know, they like to appeal to dynamical systems theory and stuff, but the systems that they're considering are usually extremely simple with a few degrees of freedom that are coupled together. But if you want to do like, you know, grown up dynamical systems theory, then you're gonna to need to appeal to things like information length to describe the, really the, the metrics on your state space. You can't avoid that. Uh, similarly, when we're talking about information, we're talking about dynamical, you know, the dynamic time course of the these couplings. So we're interested in the dynamics of information. These things are not actually separable. The idea that they are, uh, comes from uh, philosophy actually Uh, it's a a set of papers uh, from the basically late 80s early 90s by uh, van gelder uh, and port and uh, at the time you know dynamical systems theory was a new thing in cognitive science and what they were saying was hey there's this approach that we can take it's dynamical systems it's not computational and um, basically it moved from there to there's an, there's this alternative approach that's mutually incompatible. And that shift kind of happened slowly by a self-referential literature. So, you know, this is where I'm gonna be a bit critical. Uh, you can really do the historiography and trace these claims back to, uh, I mean, basically Van Gelder and Port and to some extent Gibson, but these folks, ne- they don't offer a formal argument, right? Like they're not saying, here's a proof that dynamical systems and com- computational approaches are like incompatible. They're just starting with this gut feeling that, hey, maybe there's something different here. And then that turns into, I would argue, scleroticizes or like hardens into like a, a, an a priori dogmatism. Uh, crystallizes. That isn't necessary. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that That is just based, like I was saying, on this kind of circular, you know, we're just citing other philosophers who cite other philosophers who are in, making this stuff up at the at bottom. So uh yeah i mean i kind of feel like this is a problem with the philosophy literature is like you know taking just conceptual arguments from other philosophers maybe a bit more seriously than they should without really taking the time to do the proper historiography looking where these claims are originating and then asking the question is there any real warrant for this kind of separation so yeah I- i've been going around uh recently saying that yeah this uh, split between dynamics and information theory is mostly in people's imaginations there's no mathematical basis for it. And Chris, so sorry you, for you, the wanted to, yeah, you wanted to yeah.
2: jump in. No, no, thank you. You wanted to jump in earlier and, and maybe talk about yeah. your I personal mean, I, journey might come into play here.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Maxwell's, um, I, I, you know, said some um, really interesting stuff there. I mean, I guess I take a, a slightly less uh, hard line on that, right? I mean, I think it's a, it's a historical thing. So Tim Van Gelder, were looking at deterministic uh, dynamical systems theory, like this is in the absence of noise. Uh, and unless you do ensembles of systems it's not there's no clear pathway then to to information uh, theory and, and initially in uh, models uh, when in the 80s and 90s it were typically yeah deterministic dynamical systems theories looking at bifurcations and so on and then, but the, obviously the richer, the richer set of descriptions is stochastic dynamical systems theory, and that's when information theory becomes irreplaceable, right? This become, and then they become fully enmeshed, these, these descriptions, as Carl writes about um, so nicely in lots of his work, right? But I think, you know, I, I didn't see the forking path as kind of this... I, I know that in the community that, that there's a history of using dynamical systems theory and there's, there's a sense in which the free energy has really embraced information theory. I didn't see that that's... Uh, as, a, as a key uh, the fork the key and the fork of the path right um, i mean I, I, I got to say that it's, a, it's' way out of my area this, uh, this kind of depth uh, of philosophy, but it seemed to me the kind of the problem of oper- the definition of operational closure that, that seemed to be uh, um, upsetting to you um, know uh, Randall Beer and is equal to Powell and, he, and, and the, the, the fact that it, they don 't think that can be embraced by the tenets of the free energy principle. I mean, I don't. I think they, they they made a nice case. I don't think it, a, a priori that's the case. I, I, I can't see there was a hands down argument that there is this forking path. It, I still think it's an interesting angle to take uh, to think deeply about operational closure within the free energy principle. Is um, I mean Maxwell has, and he's going to tell you the answers to this. But I, you know, uh, so I'm just aware of the the trickiness in def- defining operational closure that's happened in the literature in the last twenty years, and really in an inability to kind of really get a concrete quantitative description of what we mean by operational closure uh, and so you know i guess it's uh, uh, to say that we've simply solved it within the free energy principle that might uh, uh, that, that might have put some yeah. backs up somewhere <laughs> but you know maxwell maybe can give you a bit more insight to this because he's thought uh, deeply about how to yeah. define operational closure within the free can, energy
1: can i can i um can i frame it up for, for you maxwell so um the paper Absolutely quoted you actually i think you you um you said on on one of your papers that there is an analogy um almost a direct mapping between this concept of organizational closure and a markov blanket and of course the markov blanket is this conditional independence that you were talking about and you and you also called it an interface earlier on and um when they speak about the definition of of autopoiesis they say that I think the way that you folks in the FEP literature couch it is mostly as a form of autonomy, which is this ability to maintain your own identity under precarious position, you know, um, situations. And they say, um, well, the, the Varela kind of, Definition of autopoiesis is very much about um, structure and organisation. So it's not it's not just maintaining your own identity, but but it's about um, this self organisation and, and this kind of generating structure as well. So I wonder, just just with those things on on the table, could could you could you um,
0: absolutely? Come in? Uh, so in in that paper, I confess that I probably should have spoken. We probably should have spoken a bit more precisely. We say the Markov blanket formalism. Uh, what we mean by that is, and I don't think that this was fully appreciated by the authors at the time. Um, what we mean is Markov blankets and the generative models, right? Because, so, what, you know, the claim is, right? Let's remind the audience, just put the ta- terms on the table. A, a generative model, right, is our model of the dependencies that link the states and parameters that make up. A given system right so uh it is our way of talking about basically the causal connective tissue or structure that underwrites a given system and what the free energy principle says is if the underlying system has is disconnected in a certain appropriate way then you get this tracking behavior and formally speaking it says if there's a markov blanket in this dependency structure Right. If conditioned on certain blanket states, then it looks as if subsets of the system are independent from each other, but also tracking each other. Then, you know, you get you get this interesting uh, behavior like if there is this Markov blanket is if there is this independent structure, then you will get this tracking behavior. That's what the free energy principle is talking about. Uh, So, of course, it's not sufficient to say uh, that things are carved out in a specific way and therefore, you know, you can say interesting things about them. Uh but I think what's missed in the argument, uh, and this has to do with like, you know, I think the the op the 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 I'll say provocatively the the dogmatic commitment to anti-representationalism is like what when the inactivists read generative model, they mean a model in my head that I carry around. They they hear like a representation, right? The the uh, but what's really at stake is the generative model is the dependency structure, right? So if you have the right kind of dependency structure that generates a Markov blanket, I would say that you have what the inactivists call operational closure. Uh, in fact, you can show this mathematically. It's, I don't think it's appreciated, but, um, there is a duality uh, that has been rigorously established. Uh, Dalton Shakti-Varivel uh, is probably the uh, main proponent of the, this work, but, you know, Carl has done a lot of work over the last two decades in this direction. Uh, yeah, I think the uh, the kind of core idea to uh, remember is that minimizing your variational entropy, with uh, your variational free energy with respect to a generative model, Right. So the usual free energy story, right, is dual to or equivalent to maximizing your entropy with respect to a set of constraints. So when the inactivists talk about constraint closure and all of this stuff, you know, uh, uh, Alicia Guerrero's new uh, book, uh, Context Changes Everything. The inactivists uh, in, in the autopoietic uh, tradition really want to go hard on this and say, well, what you really need to do is map a set of constraints such that the system kind of self generates. Well, that is rigorously and absolutely equivalent to minimizing your free energy with respect to a generative model. There's no difference there. So we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about the way well, that like a set of structured dependencies generates a thing that's able to sustain itself over time. And as I was saying, this this sustained over time is a way of describing the interface or coupling between the system and its environment. So the just, Mathematically, we're talking about the same thing. Uh, and, Actually, and well, you... let me,
2: but let me ask sure. a question here because there's – and and this is hopefully – because I, like Carl, I want to find out if I'm in an activist. Mm-hmm. So maybe, maybe you can help set us up for considering this. A big bone of contention for them in that paper is this distinction that they have in their mind between structure and organization. Mm-hmm. And they seem to get upset when any attempt is made to link organization to structure. For example, if, you know – to me, the markov boundary that's say analogous to a um a uh, animal cell membrane, I understand as a former person who studied biology that the molecules of that membrane are in flux, things come and go, proteins are added, carbohydrates are removed, et cetera I don't have in my mind a set of molecules that's like there forever in some type of like you know um, stationary structure like it's a very dynamic kind of system. But they seem to say, oh, no, if you if you equate, you know, a Markov boundary to an organizational structure, then you're making this, you know, fallacy of kind where you're associating like an organization with like the substrate that, you know, manifests that in reality. Like, can you explain to me like what they were actually up in arms about with this organization Uh, versus structure? You know, maybe Carl, if you could comment on it when Maxwell tells us so we can figure out if we're an activist. So
0: I'll. Uh, just let me bracket the stuff about stationarity and historicity for one second, because uh, I have some stuff to say about that. Um, but so it comes we'll come back, back to, to
2: that. We'll come back to that because yeah, I have a question about that.
0: It, it comes back to what I was saying about you know it's not just about Markov blankets; it's about generative models. If you don't appreciate the distinction and what you think we're saying is, Markov blankets tell the whole story, then obviously you're gonna, you know, think that we're conflating structure and organization. When you realize that what we're talking about is, uh you know, a Markov blanket within this dependency structure, right? Th- then I think you, you move to something else. I would say like what the inactivists call structure corresponds to these Markov blankets that we're drawing. And the organization, we talk about and we harness in the generative model, right? Remember, the generative model is not my internal representation in my head. It's the overall dependency structure of the system. It's what they would call the organization of the system. So, I mean, I would agree that we shouldn't conflate them. And I would, you know, add that we don't. Uh, that yeah. There are distinct constructs that map onto these things. Um, and, you know, I would also point out that Markov blankets are flexible. Um, we uh, will be putting out uh, work uh, over the next few months on uh, wandering Markov blankets. Like we've got that figured out algorithmically now. We uh, can draw oh. a blanket around a yeah. flame and stuff like that now. So we've got all of that working, uh, and it's not I've problematic. I've been looking forward
2: to that since Carl mentioned it in the the first. The first interview well, with him <laughs> let's
1: let's um, we'll set an anchor to come back to that because that, that's very interesting actually and actually one comment you made in in your multi-scale paper was that these are ontological boundaries by which i think you are implying that they are not a lens they are fixed to, to some extent but i want to just stick on on this um, organization point for a second though so in in the paper they said that um essentially the way the fep <clears throat> couches this is a, is as a form of homeostasis which is just about you know maintaining structural properties. And when they spoke about organization, they said the conservation of organization is what's spoken about in the classic autopoetic literature. And I think you were just making the argument, Maxwell, that that, that generative model is in some sense the conservation of organization. So is that the missing link? I mean, maybe yeah, Professor Friston, you can come in.
0: Yeah, do you want to take that, Carl? I mean, I think that's right, but Carl will probably uh, comment more eloquently than I on that
3: i don't think so i think you're being very eloquent thank you <laughs> do your worst and then I'll, I'll i'll chip in if necessary um
0: yeah i mean i, I think that's that's exactly right like the Markov blankets don't have to be um permanent uh, they they can be shifting and um Basically, minimizing your free energy with respect to some generative model corresponds to keeping some structure in play. Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, actually, this segue is nicely into the stuff about stationarity and historicity. Uh, I think this is the biggest problem in their paper. Um, they claim that the free energy principle can't account for historicity uh, in the sense that it can't account for path dependency. Right. So for our audience, path dependency is this idea that it's not just your position in state space that matters. It's also your velocity, roughly speaking. Right. That like the the kind of direction that you're going in, where you came from is just as important to where you're going as where you are currently. Um And they claim that, you know, the free energy. So they make a bunch of false claims about the free energy principle, which leads them astray. So, for example, they claim that the free energy principle uh, assumes stationarity. It doesn't. Uh, as we've discussed before, there are different applications of the free energy principle in the literature. The two main families of applications are, um, density dynamics and path integrals. Um, so I drink a lot of coffee. And if you were to sample me at random during the day, I would say there's a one in 25 chance. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I would say there's a one in 25 chance that I'm drinking coffee. If you just sample me randomly during the day. if you were to sample me uh, over a week, once per day, there's a 100% chance that I would drink coffee per day, right? So th- there's a difference between looking at the probability of states of me drink, you know, Maxwell is drinking coffee, and the probabilities of paths of me or entire trajectories of me. Um, and that is a really critical distinction. Um, the free energy s- principle started off as a path based formulation. And I think this is absolutely underappreciated in the literature. If you look back at Carl's early papers, I- including the ones that everyone has read, right, the 2010 uh, I- the unified brain theory paper in nature. Uh, Yet yeah, these are all written in terms of paths. Carl is taking like a-, a sensory path and then writing down, you know, blanket paths and internal paths. And it's all it's all about, um, the way the trajectories of the system are maintained. So this is a cool idea that, that was there before and that we're doubling back down on now, uh, which is that it's really, a, it's, a, it's about blanket paths that make internal paths independent of external paths. So there's a sense in which like it's always been about counterfactual futures. It's, and it's difficult to argue that like you don't account for historicity when literally the core construct that you're deploying is, <laughs> like probabilities of different histories, like counterfactual futures, but that entire argument about uh, historicity makes no sense formally. It's just, abs- th- I, I, you know, and uh, again, we appreciate the critical engagement. This isn't to, you know, bash anyone specifically, but like, this is a complete non-starter mathematically. Also, um, wh- when you're doing density dynamics, right? When you're not considering probability densities over paths, but rather you're considering probabilities of states and you're doing this non-equilibrium, steady state stuff. So when you are assuming stationarity, you're saying like, yeah, there are these kind of regular cyclical behaviors that I want to model. Even in that context, uh, the free energy principle can handle path dependence. Like literally, I think on page 12 of like Carl's monograph from 2019 on the density dynamics formulations, there are already terms that contain you know expressions that are able to handle path dependency uh, that are basically dependent on changes in surprise in your system. So, so neither so before we
2: before we move too far, maybe Chris, you can you might be able to steal man what the the paper was trying to say there. Or, <laughs> Am I not or being where, generous or, enough? Or where, or, well, I'm just I'm I'm just I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to decide if I'm in an activist because Tim's a big fan, so I want to you know give it fair. Jo- Anyone does anybody want to steal man? You know. Where the paper might have been coming from, in terms of this argument against
4: historicity,
0: I can strawman it if you want no I'm, Sorry, for I a steel man. Is,
4: I'm happy to have a go with that but I mean so uh, we're a very broad church at um uh, uh within this community and we 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 debate within ourselves about uh, the you know the 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 true origins and how we get these things out, so I actually uh was worried about this historicity thing. Uh, uh, in in an earlier version we did in uh, we published in Physics Life Reviews with a a student, a very talented student of mine and we we found real problems with it when we were in a state-based formulation of the system and I I know Maxwell uh, feels that that even in the state-based description of probability densities that we can recover historicity I guess we we we're, we're still not complete agreement on that, but the, what what's majorly happened in the in the free energy is this movement to paths, and I, and I agree with uh, uh, Maxwell. If you go back into Carl's original work, talking like uh, Carl was, he's not here, but if you go back to Carl's original work, he was uh, framing it in terms of paths. But the presentations in the monograph were to do to do with states and when we worked through that we found it that the historicity was hard to to to, to get back into these systems but the path formalization then makes it clear how historicity because it's built into the system because you're preserving sets of paths you go to you know uh homeoresis rather than homeostasis in, in the descriptions of these systems and then there's this kind of nice elegant uh, way to deal with historicity and you know and i think so I, I, I don't think that's a, a real issue with the free energy principles. So. But I can imagine, I don't know what technical literature they've, they've read, but perhaps if they've read the state-based formulae- formulation, they had the same worries about us about historicity. And if they read these new um, path-based stuff that uh, um, Maxwell and Dalton are developing, I think those kind of uh, dissolve. I think that it's a much richer okay. uh, framework now.
2: So maybe Carl, um, mm-hmm. what were you thinking back then? when you did it as, as paths, you know? <laughs> Maybe just give us uh some some uh thought behind your intuition for why you originally formulated it as, you know, path path integrals or path systems and, you know, what your perspective is on what we've been discussing so far.
3: Right. Um I can't really remember. But um I suppose the you know, the obvious answer is much of this inherits from Richard Feynman's work on the path integral formulation, indeed the variational free energy can be traced uh hmm. Uh, right back to I think probably his PhD thesis. I haven't actually read the PhD thesis, but I've been told that all the maths you need is there. Um, so it, it would be difficult for me to conceive of a calculus that wasn't uh, framed in terms of um, in terms of paths until you start to try and draw graphics and explain to people who are not familiar um, with um, you know with the notion of, you know with the path integral formulation and its equivalence with um, density dynamics, as articulated, say, with the Fokker Planck equation, or I repeat, sort of Kolmogorov forward and um, backward equations. Um, so I think that is, um, you know, you, that's one really important aspect of historicity um, and becomes, I think, even more prescient when you think about deploying a pathological form, uh, formulation of self organization in the context of 21st century physics because what we're talking about now is a move away from 20th century equilibrium physics with point attractors to open systems that are far from equilibrium. So mathematically, um, or one mathematical bright line between the physics of equilibrium and the physics of non-equilibrium, which is what the free energy principle um, is about, or specifically when non-equilibrium steady state solutions admit a Markov blanket but um, returning to the sort of um, what is definitive of non-equilibria it is effectively the um, not the historicity but the the, 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 um, the itinerancy you get from solenoidal dynamics sort of conservative dynamics that now supplement the dissipative flows that characterize completely Classical physics and equilibrium, um, equilibria steady states. So, so if you wanted to define the difference between an open system or an out of equilibrium or a non equilibrium system from an equilibrium system, the simple kind of systems that Chris was referring to in his, you know, um, uh, toy models of, you know, does a free energy principle work in, you know, in this kind of system, um, then all you would do is write down, um, the dynamics in terms of dissipative and conservative or non-dissipative divergence-free components. And that, um, if you like, um, decomposition of the flow into conservative and dissipative parts is just the Helmholtz decomposition. It's just the the fundamental lemma of variational uh, calculus, I think, um, or fundamental theorem, um, which just says that, you know, Any flow, any dynamics um, can always be decomposed into this sort of gradient descent that underwrites classical physics or equilibrium physics um, and a solenoidal divergence-free flow that underwrites classical mechanics. Um, But you put the two together and you have, um, by definition, now... um, a, uh, a mathematical image of non-equilibrium systems and notice that um, in introducing this kind of itinerancy that um, is for example uh, you know heuristically you know uh, water going down a plug hole so the dissipative part the gradient flow would be the the uh, the water tumbling down uh, you know, into the depths of your house but as it circulates around um, technically, in, in in terms of the information theory around uh, on isocontours, the probability distribution, but you know you can just visualize the water circularity. That's the solenoidal part. And of course, um, when you talk about biotic self-organization or self-organization um, in non-equilibria that has that sort of life-like biotic form, the the uh, you know, the the key characteristic of this kind of biotic circulation is basically rhythms and life cycles um, so the very fact you're dealing with um uh, this kind of uh, historicity that is inherent in the itinerancy of any system that is not at equilibrium means that you are you have to how uh, write down um, or have an understanding or a mathematics that deals with these with these flows and these life cycles. Just one little in- interesting twist here is if you take the randomness out of this, if you go back to deterministic dynamical systems of the kind I now understand underwrote the the split or the fork in the road in philosophy. Um, what you do is you're basically removing from the perspective of the Helmholtz decomposition the dissipative part, and you're just left with the conservative part. What is that? That's just Newtonian mechanics. It's just classical mechanics, which is why the sun, uh, we rotate around the sun, or the moon takes these orbits. This is just this solenoidal flow. In the limit, that you've ignored the randomness that you that, that um, calls for the information theoretical probabilistic descriptions you know, of any world. So the, the free energy principle doesn't deal with all kinds of systems. It deals with um, systems that have an admixture of both the dissipative and the solenoidal or divergence free parts. If you wanted to just do the dissipative parts, you do quantum mechanics. If you just wanted to do the solenoidal part, you do classical mechanics and deterministic systems but in the middle, you're, you know, in the Goldilocks regime in which you and I operate, we're talking about stochastic chaos, uh, basically. Another description of this itinerancy. So I think that that's, that's you know, one aspect of historicity which I, you know, is celebrated in the physics of self-organization. Um, and I keep using the word self-organization because I read autopoiesis as self-creation or at least self-maintenance. Uh, I now appreciate it's not quite self, um, it's be slightly beyond self-maintenance and 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 uh, um, in the sense that, you know, to create, um, uh, you know, imply something slightly greater and that may be, um, and I'm gonna have to ask Chris, um, it may be related to operational closure. So I'd like to, if somebody could dis- just dis- describe for me and the audience what operational closure is, that, w- that would be quite nice. But before you do, Um, There is another important aspect of historicity, uh, which we haven't mentioned, which inherits from um, the deployment of the free energy principle or perhaps just the Helmholtz decomposition um, in using the apparatus of the renormalization group. And what that brings to the table is a separation of temporal scales. And as soon as you have that in play, there's a different kind of historicity which you you, you have to accommodate in any given calculus, certainly for open systems, um, which means that the the, the kind of steady state solutions that are non-equilibrium steady state solutions we are talking about in the context of the pathogenical formulation um, only exist over a certain time scale. There's always a time scale above contextualises it, and there's always a timescale below that is much, much faster, where things live for very, very short periods of time. And I think that's another important aspect of historicity, that we're not talking about a unique or privileged timescale here. So when people talk about stationarity or ergodicity or um, steady states, um, we, there, they, you know, one cannot say that this is the um, if configuration of a system at t equals infinity. The, the, you know, because you have to acknowledge that there is no privileged right. timescale. At this timescale, we will assume there is a steady state solution, but we have to be very explicit. It's at this timescale, and this does not apply at the timescale above or the timescale below. And interestingly, uh, just mathematically, it, it, well, perhaps a naive mathematical or certainly a physicist's mathematical perspective um, the very fact you have the separation of time scale basically means that there are fast there's fast stuff or fast dynamics and slow dynamics uh, and at the end of the day if you now consider what is the difference between the flow of states that you would find in a deterministic deterministic uh, dynamical system and the random fluctuations that convert it into a random dynamical system, the only difference between these things is whether they're fast or slow. So you can treat the random fluctuations, the noise that induces a probabilistic description and all the information theoretic treatments, as simply the fast things and everything else is the slow stuff. So again, speaking to, if you like, a, um, an almost necessary connection um between any dynamical systems uh, formulation that is sufficiently liberal to include fast and slow stuff and uh, probabilistic treatments of that, of the kind that uh, Richard Feynman pursued in in terms of trying to work out the probability of the path of a small particle or electron um, for his PhD thesis. Anyway, what is operational closure?
4: I I should just go up a definition from Varela if you want me to read it out can, that, can, can i just frame to... you
1: up there chris because in in that <laughs> yeah. forking paper there was i actually thought it was a little bit um hand wavy it's not like in graph theory where you have very kind of precise definitions so they had a they had a um a kind of a node diagram and they said it was operationally closed if all of the black colored nodes had one arrow going out and connecting to another one and they had a kind of diagram just showing a, 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 an organism but what what's the official definition chris
4: Yeah, so this is a definition from Varela. It says, uh, an autonomous system is, that is, their organization is characterized by processes such that the processes are related as a network so that recursively depend on each other in the generation and realization of the processes themselves. And two, they constitute the system as a unity recognizable in space uh, in which those processes exist. So it's kind of this deep recursivity between the processes uh, maintaining the network to, necessary for the processes, this kind of generation of the system's own constraints. And I guess this has been, it's always been a kind of slightly ineffable within the autopoetic literature what this means formally, right? There's a deep intuition this is correct. You know, you think about, uh, as uh, Keith said before, the, the matter is changing as, as flux is uh, changing these processes, but the identity is somehow staying the same, and that's the organizational structure that's uh, it's maintained over time rather than the material. Uh, components of that of that structure, And I do think you know that there is this sense uh, there was some, when we did focus on these uh, state-based descriptions of the free energy principle. I think that kind of uh, undersold the solenoidal flow that um, Carl was talking about. Where's that is, I think is much more important to the people in, 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 in autopoiesis because this notion of, uh, of this kind of flow of information and the organization is dynamic within the equilibrium is important for, for, for that field. So I think the, you know, the new directions they've got in the free energy principle, things that like Maxwell and Dalton are pursuing, is to me an exciting opportunity to kind of reconcile some of the ineffability of these operational closure ideas uh, in, in autopoiesis and, and this framework, essentially.
2: Cool. Cool. So, um, just Rachel, move- do you want to do you want to comment maybe briefly on on that before we move on? Like, because uh, Chris Chris called out some of your work there with Dalton.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, in in a good way, though, I think what Chris is saying is that he agrees with the direction. I I would just say that this isn't really new work, and this says that what Dalton and I are just doing is extending work that Carl did almost 20 years ago. Uh, So I see this as more continuous. Uh, You know, someone might say that I'm being overly generous, which uh, I might be, you know, by by looking at this as like one kind of continuous development. Uh, But yeah, I I don't really, I I think, uh, you know, you can think of the state, Based description is sort of the asymptotic limit of the path-based description. The two are kind of like deeply uh, connected uh, in in some sense. Um, so, no, I mean, uh, I, I think this is re- this is the direction that we want to go. There's still some interesting stuff that you can say using the density dynamics formulation. Uh, we just have to be, you know, it, it's like we were discussing, uh, in, in Keith, during our MLST uh, interview uh, last time, this is mind physics. Right. So, you know, uh, a, a hallmark of uh, physics is idealization. And so, you know, necessarily some of these constructs are going to be, uh, you know, the map has to be simpler than the territory. It's like we were saying, right? You know, mm-hmm. otherwise you get, you wind up in a Borges novel with like, a, you know, a map the size of Los Angeles that you can't use. Uh, so, uh, you know, for certain kinds of oscillatory, cyclical bio behaviors, the non equilibrium steady state is a perfectly fine, uh, You know, a model of it, Uh, you know, uh, I I, I drink coffee so regularly that it might as well be like, you know, deterministic and uh, like, you know, orbiting the sun kind of thing. Uh, So, uh, you know, this speaks to the fact that the free energy principle is what it says on the tin. It's a principle. It's a, it's a, that leads to a modeling method. Um, and you know, uh, we make some assumptions, uh, and we're able to say some things, uh, but the, the principle itself doesn't rest on, on any of these assumptions, um, like stationarity, uh, for example, like you, you don't really need that to get it, to get it working. All you need is a Markov blanket in your random dynamical system and you're sort of ready to go. Um, uh, in terms of like the formalization of, uh, the inactive approach, I always saw this, uh, So like Chris, by the way, I think this is under, I I don't talk about it very much, but much like Chris, I started off recalcitrant to the free energy (laughs) principle. I I found out about this stuff in around 2014 and it, you know, like I said, I was trained as an, an activist and... This really conflicted with my intuitions, and I went into this thinking, I, I, I need to. Uh, and this is also what I think the, the spirit that motivates a lot of criticism. You go into this thinking, I need to understand this just enough to be able to to know for sure that I don't need to understand this actually. <laughs> and uh, you know, you go into this, and I, I you know, I, I remember having like a conversion experience reading um Carl's twenty twelve entropy paper called. A Free Energy Principle for Biological Systems, which was a path-based kind of formulation and everything. And really, you know, seeing, oh, wow, like, th- there's, no, there's no resisting this. Like, this is inevitable. And really getting, like, oh, yeah, this is an inevitable consequence of physics, isn't it? Like, there's no... There's no getting around this, uh, and then kind of you know doubling down uh, in my conversion yeah. and then becoming a part of the community. Um, so I... um, what's funny is I had the opposite experience of you two. So I when I first <laughs> saw
2: it, I'm like, "This is amazing! Like this is exactly how how it works." And now I've been trying to escape ever since. You know, I don't I don't like being <laughs> shackled like to the free energy principle. And and funny enough, we've talked before about how um, you know Carl that the free energy principle is one of the few principles that applies to itself. It's like as simple as it as it can be and still and still work the other aspect in which that's true is as we've been talking about it maintains this flexibility or maybe vagueness you know critics might say but it maintains this flexibility which leads to it inevitably generating all kinds of controversy and debates you know and people arguing about like the limits of that flexibility right
0: one thing i would quickly point out is like uh the there's this sense, I think, in the literature that there are like 17 different possible interpretations of the free energy principle and that you can make right. it say one thing and it's opposite. Right. Uh, what I've been going around saying is, no, that's not correct. There's only the free energy principle and it, it has the implications that it does. Uh, and there are misinterpretations of the free energy principle. Uh, so, for example, you know, I think uh, th- this idea that some people in the literature have been uh, pushing that like the free energy principle is even compatible with. This kind of radical anti-realism, this kind of uh, you know, uh, like a Descartes' demon kind of thing, uh, that's not that just doesn't follow. It's it's incompatible with the math. Like the you need you need there to be an actual world out there to couple to you for the math to get yeah. off the ground. So there there actually isn't yeah. a bunch of different interpretations. There's just the free energy principle. It's just that it's a lens that make you makes you see that a lot of the dichotomies that used to structure the way we think about things are false. Uh, and this comes back to the thing that we were discussing at the end of our interview, Keith. Uh, this is sort of like a, um, you know, you're sort of abolishing the distinction between the supralunary and the sublunary spheres, right? So classical mechanics uh, abolishes the the distinction that was popular in scholastic philosophy, which was, you know, like a thousand, a thousand five hundred years of like, you know, uh, natural philosophy saying, well. I mean, if you look at the way things behave, the things out there beyond the moon in the supra-lunary sphere, right, they move in perfect orbits, perfect circles, uh, seems to have nothing to do with, you know, things here that fall to the ground or rise and have a beginning, a middle and an end. These seem like radically distinct spheres of reality, but then Newton comes along and classical mechanics equips you with a set of equations that apply equally to things here and things over there, thereby just abolishing that distinction. And I think like the free energy principle comes around and does undoes a lot of these false dichotomies in the same way. Like we were talking about internalism versus externalism. It allows you to say, yeah, there's something to the internalist story. The internal Mm -hmm. states are doing something special, but you actually need the external world to be there to get the story to kind of pick up. So I think you get a lot of this. uh, And I guess my hot take (laughs) is that uh, the inactivists need there to be a bright line in the universe, like a bright red line. Uh, on the one, and then what's on each side of the line depends on the inactivists, right? So, like, uh, but the story is always something like there's physics, there's mere physics on one side, and then there's the interesting stuff on the other side. There's biology, or maybe there's mind, or there's something like that. And there is this bright red line, like, yeah. Uh, so, Carl, sort of Max, need it.
2: Maxwell's saying the free energy principle is the ultimate shade of gray.
1: I hope you, uh, <laughs> I hope
2: you appreciate that. Well no, I know Tim. Okay. Uh, Tim, we wanted to move to
1: a new topic yeah yeah well, yeah i mean there's there's a few things to to touch on there i mean certainly the the philosophy of um uh you know an activism versus ecological psychology is is an interesting one because with an activism we get quite a few um uh, philosophical things. Um, bagged on that possibly we, we may or may not want for example the phenomenology the um, existentialism which is this idea that you can shape your own experience this kind of eastern um, philosophy which is that in some sense there's no distinction between you and your environment and it's, it's, it has been criticized as being quite ill-defined and, and vague but um, I think Maxwell you have said that there's much more of a tighter compatibility with um, ecological psychology and that's essentially that we see the world through affordances and what that means is that we see the world as trajectories of actions in our physical um, environment that that we live in and philosophically that's a realist ontology so that means there are no representations we're taking actions in the real world and we know that the real world um, exists Uh, Now, many cognitive science people, of course, resist to this notion because they say we need to have representations and then we get to this interesting discussion that we're having about this kind of continuum between this idea that on the one hand there are no representations if we are Gibsonian and we are ecological um, psychologists um, but on, on the other hand um, we might need to have increasing levels of representation if we actually have this temporal depth, if we have these nested um, Markov boundaries and we are sophisticated minds that are making predictions into the future now with that laid out I wanted to talk about this notion of goals. Now, in a um, externalist, inactivist framework, I think that goals are not something we should explicitly define. Now, when you speak with GoFi people and they talk about building cognitive architectures, they say that goals should be explicitly crafted into the architecture. At least that's what they would have said 20 years ago. Now they're slightly more refined and they say, well, we should have a goal module in the architecture, but the goals should be acquired empirically and there should be sub goals and and so on. Now... If I understand correctly, we were just talking about the free energy principle. It has this notion of paths and we have beliefs over trajectories of actions into the future. And to what extent is a belief a goal? Because if, 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 if you have an almost infinite number of beliefs, so there's a trajectory to this future state where I'm rich but there's also an infinitude of other potential trajectories. And they are, of course, constrained by the physical affordances and trajectories that I can take in my physical environment. That seems different to having an intention of wanting to be rich or wanting to play tennis because I'm constrained in all of these different ways. So, yeah, why don't we just talk about the dichotomy between beliefs and goals?
0: Uh, I-, I think. Carl or Chris would be better equipped to answer the the latter question. Carl in particular has been thinking about intentional behavior quite deeply recently. Uh, I did wanna quickly comment upon ecological psychology. Uh, I have been um, saying to the eco-psych community that uh, Bayesian mechanics and eco-psych are the same discipline. They're really, it's the same thing. Vicente Raja is one of the uh, cooler, uh, more technically proficient people in the ecocyc community. And uh, after, you know, a few years of back and forth, we've realized that, yeah, we're using exactly the same set of mathematical tools. The only framing (laughs) is, the only difference is a philosophical framing is, uh, are you an indirectist or a directist, right? So, and I, I happen to think that these are just kind of semantic quibbles. If you look at the more contemporary eco-psych literature, so the eco-psych people are, tend to be much more sophisticated Technically, than the inactive people, and one thing that they have in common is that they don't reject information theory out of hand. They want a the richer notion of information, like ecological information or semantic information, some kind of information that has some relevance to the environment, uh, you know, the the organisms, like uh, milieu, it's it's umvelt, it's it's world of life. Uh, but they're not rejecting information theory. In fact. Uh, Gibson's original ambition was to apply physics to the study of perception, just straight up. Uh, you know, so it's all about like, you know, energy, the the, the energy on the perceptual arrays and, and all of this stuff. It's essentially, I think, the same project from a methodological and mathematical perspective. The main difference is just a, a, an enacted, an, an ecological psychologist, sorry, would say that we perceive things directly. Uh, But then they appeal to this, these notions of like resonance and whatever, which, you know, to to us is just a synonym for inference. Uh, I I guess it's like the difference rests in like, are are you centering on the the internal perspective of an organism or are you looking at things as a multi-scale stack? With the organism kind of carving out one level, uh, so we had a great session actually with Michael Anderson's uh, Emerge Lab group uh, based out of uh, Ontario. And my my gut tells me that there will be uh, a, um, a kind of strategic alliance and maybe even just a merging of these two fields uh, moving forward. Uh, yeah, and you know, for the more cynical part of me thinks that the the merger of Free energy principle and eco psych gives you everything that you might want out of inactivism, activism, but without any of the, you know, heavy kind of metaphysical or philosophical baggage that seems to be, you know, hindering progress in that field. So that's my thing about <laughs> eco Um uh... Okay,
1: uh, maybe uh, we, we can bring you Chris in on on the the goals thing. So is is a goal an end state? Is it a trajectory? Is it a bearing? and yeah. is it is it does it exist explicitly in the externalist view of cognition
4: well so I'm a I'm kind of more of a practical computational person, so i, I I'll leave the philosophy to, to maxwell, but i mean I, I tend to take the intentional stance, intentional stance on systems where if we can dis- if it makes sense for us to describe a system as goal directed then we should do so, and if that helps engineers to build those systems then they they, they should do so right but there's a nice kind of uh, there's a nice parallel between uh, those are kind of ideas and the original work in cybernetics. So there's, a, you know, the good regulator theorem, which is, this kind of early work by Conant and Ashby suggests that any any control system of a given environment is a good model of the environment it's, that it controls just by, by necessity from first principles, right? Which to me, which su- suggests that we should, in principle, be able to describe... Uh, an intentional structure uh, in terms of the kind of generative model uh, within within a system. We should be able to find it if it is a good control system and it should exist. I think there's also a more practical thing about shifting from uh, the notion of reward as this kind of potential function that's kind of dominated the machine learning Area, right? So we have this kind of monolithic thing called reward, and everything is in, in service of that reward to a richer notion of beliefs about dynamics, which, which, which affords that kind of, uh, you know, moves away that potential function to a more kind of dynamical system so we can get more kind of rich beliefs about future trajectories and, and so on. And we know that in control systems, that's really, it's really important, right? If we want to control a system, mm-hmm. we're doing model-based control. We have to have desires on the futures of those systems. We need to understand the trajectory and the divergence of the trajectories over, uh, through time, right? So I think it's a much richer picture practically to think about, uh, uh, you know, beliefs about dynamics rather than uh, reward, and I think there's this nice parallel between the intentional structure and, and the good regulator theory, because I think the good regulator theorem entails that we should find those kind of intentional dynamics within our systems, right? We, that, just by right. a priori first reasoning.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to know if he could explain the good regulator theorem, because I think that- Yes, yeah, so the good regulator is theorem is, is like is.
4: really strong resonances with this. And I think, you know, there was a long, there was a long time, uh, not Carl, the Carl's excluded from this, a long time, the people who uh, were reading the free energy literature to think that the kind of the roots of the free energy principle was in Helmholtz, Helmholtzian perception, right, this notion, the Bayesian inference and uh, perception. But there's kind of a much richer reading to see its its roots in, in cybernetics movement, and particularly by the works of people like uh, Ross Ashby and so on. So he basically said... Uh, He provided this theorem that showed that if you want to build a regulator for a given environmental system that optimally regulates that system, then it necessitates that regulator is a good model of that system, right? And there's a kind of, you can take that kind of in a strong way uh, and a weak way, and we we worried about this for a long time. But just to diffuse that from its representational kind of implications, which we worried about for a long time, you can see this in something like even like the Watt Governor, which is used as his classic. Uh, an activist system that doesn't is non non-representationalist. but there are kind of a, there, there's a sense in which the, the dynamics of the what governor needs to mir- mirror the fluctuations of the the steam engine mm. it's regulating, and it's that kind of coupling and that kind of uh, reflection of those dynamics which is important uh, for the regulation of that system, right? So that kind of you can back out that I, you know I think this is very nicely aligned with the intentional stance and it demands. Uh, an intentional stance if you if you if you if you if if you're committed to this notion of the good regulator theorem to uh, riff on
1: your point of the intentional stance, i I think that that's a fascinating way of looking at it um chris and and to bring you in professor frisson so um professor daniel dennett had this notion of the intentional stance that um when we you know we we essentially have a mental model of the intentions of other agents and we use that to understand their behavior and an intention is a goal if you think about it, it's, it's something I want to do, but in this dynamical um, systems framework, it's not explicitly coded anywhere. It kind of emerges, and of course, it's a subjective state. So we've spoken about mental phenomenal states being encoded in our generative model in our in our free energy framework, and those states will of course have um, intentional um, you know representations of the other agents that we're dealing with. So I guess just the, the question back to you, Professor Friston. How do goals kind of get encoded in in this dynamics?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I know the answer you want because you don't like goals, do you? <laughs>
1: so, or <laughs> you, um, well, I don't mind if they're. I guess the answer is they're emergent, which is yes, which is I that's, yeah. That's,
3: I was groping for that. Yes, they have to. Yeah. You know, you have to find a physics where it looks as if there are goals and they emerge from a particular kind of self-organization. I, and I think that's that's been beautifully illustrated just in the, in the previous conversations you've had. Um, you know, ranging from um, the work of uh, um, Ross Ashby on his homeostat, which I think would be better nowadays called an allostat, but we, we just stick with the homeostat. Because you know, does homeostasis have a goal? Does my physiology have the goal of maintaining my temperature at 37 degrees centigrade? It certainly looks like that. Do I intend to do that? Well, um, I think on one reading of intention, yes. Uh, um, And certainly on an allostatic um, reading of um, behaviours that have this temporal depth and are the consequence of plans into the future, you know, Putting, uh, turning on the thermostat or putting on clothes, I think then you know, you're getting much closer to this sort of more anthropomorphic notion of intentionality where there, I think there are goals, there are, there are endpoints. Um, so I guess that the question then um, is, you know, at what point would these different kinds of intentionality or goal-directed behaviour emerge from self-organisation um, and in which, what particular kinds of systems would you expect to see this, these 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 behaviors? I think there's some fairly straightforward answers from the point of view of the physicist, not not the philosopher. Um, so if you just look at um, the different kinds of systems that you could apply the free energy principle to, um, we've talked about one of them um, right at the beginning uh, when considering. Markov blankets that did not have any have any internal states. Uh, for example, a stone. Yeah. So every state of this thing is just a Markov blanket, and it is in reciprocal exchange with the external states. Um, so that would be when the internal se- states are empty. Well, are there other kinds of systems that you could have? Well, you could imagine systems that didn't have any active states. Um, but you know. Um, most interesting systems do have active states. And then you ask about the relative contribution of these random fluctuations to the dynamics, of, you know, of the self-organization. And if you just follow the maths through, um, the pathological, uh, in particular, um, maths of the uh, dynamics that any system at a particular temporal scale must have, if it's internal or autonomous dynamics um, or the dynamics, the flows of the internal states and the uh, the blanket states that constitute a particle or a person, when they become um, sufficiently precise. So when we get, become big enough um, and cool enough. So let's assume that we're 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 big we're we're bigger than a quantum scale, but not too big to become classical. So we're not the size of the moon, but we are roughly your size and my size, or perhaps the size of a, a mouse or an insect through to to an elephant or a giraffe, um, then you have uh, this interesting situation of these very precise dynamics. And they're precise just because we are big. So all the random fluctuations are averaged away. Uh, in this particular case, then you can, dem- you can um, show that these particular kinds of things or Markov blankets um have a very well-defined probability distribution over paths into the future, specifically the paths of the active states. So let's assume that there are certain kinds of particles or creatures um, that have active states and they have um uh, you know um they, and the blanket states enshroud a sufficient number of internal states. What would they look like if they had very precise dynamics? Well, you can actually work out the probability distribution over the active states, over their actions, over their movements. And these could be physiological movements, autonomic reflexes. They could be physical movements, eye movements, or um, perambulatory movements, or indeed even talking. Um, And it it transpires that the, 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 um, the probability distribution over these particular paths of active states, has an interesting functional form when written in terms of the potential or the log probability, and we call that expected free energy. Um, And that expected free energy, when you just write it down, um, passes into or can can be decomposed into things that um, people have been dealing with for uh, centuries, Um, uh, specifically um, the expected information gain and the expected reward or utility, where reward or utility is um, scored by the um, the log probability of occupying an attractive state or rewarding state. And I use the word attractive state deliberately because it is just um, part of the pullback attractor that um, affords the application of um the you know the pathical formulation um it's just the characteristic states this kind of thing occupies so the the goalness if you like is is um, um inherent in the characteristics of the particle or person that you're trying to describe so for certain kinds of particles or persons, then it will certainly look as if they are acting with long term vision, namely planning in a way to Return themselves to their attracting set, which you could look, you could now regard as a goal, uh, or a rewarded, or at least an attracting, uh, an attracting um, outcome or um, um, or or state of being. So I think that kind of particle starts to now show the the deep intention. You know, it it looks as if they are they are doing this because they intend some outcome. I think the next step, though, which is the one that you were speaking to, possibly Dan Dennett was implying, is another I think step, which is but does the, the does the internal state know that? you know am I aware that I am planning um and of course that calls upon very, very sophisticated so if they exist um internal generative models that entail a model of me. And the hypothesis that all of this these sensations and all the consequences of my actions which i am not aware of um you know i i, I cannot feel all the um sensory um uh, not sensory all the neuronal impulses that cause my muscles to contract all i can register is the consequences of that through my muscle my stretch receptors, my proprioceptive receptors, or if it's in my gut all my uh, autonomic, uh, uh, introceptive uh, receptors. So I don't know what I'm, I can't, I can't have, I do have, have no access to my actual action, but I can see the consequences of it and it looks as if I'm planning. So I now have a hypothesis, a right. model, a fantasy, that I am a thing and I seem to have goals. And if I can learn the kinds of goals that I have, then I can now start to mentalize and have notions in my generative model about my goals. And then I can notice, oh, you have goals. Or perhaps it's the other way around. Perhaps, first of all, it looks as if the explanation for this random dynamical system over here called mom is actually, but she looks as if she plans. It looks as (laughs) if she has goals. And then a few years later, if I develop a sense of self, well, perhaps I'm a thing like mom. And that perhaps I have goals. So I think that you're, you're t- from the point of view of Dan Dennett's intentional stance, I think we're talking about a very, very particular kind of, of system um, that actually has this capacity to recognize, first of all, intentional like behaviors, long term planning dynamics in other conspecifics so or things like itself, and then actually transcribe that and test the hypothesis. Well, perhaps I'm a thing like that as well. Perhaps I'm me. Perhaps yeah, I and what and what's
2: beautiful about what you just said there, and and all three of you have said this in different different ways. So I want to dwell on this just a bit because I think it's a source of the misunderstanding and or controversy about the free energy principle. So earlier Maxwell, you had said you know it's really a model about the couplings and and the isolations together, the couplings and the decouplings and the dynamics between them. Uh, you know, Carl, you just said systems will behave as if they had intentions whether or not they really have intentions or not is kind of a different philosophical question but they'll behave as if they had intentions and chris you brought up you know the watt governor which is it's it's obviously a very simple dynamic system you know a spinning centrifuge and you know arm bar like whatever else and yet it's it's not as though it's a literal model in the sense that i'm going to have a mathematica mathematical model for what the steam engine is doing but it's behaving as if it were an effective model of the steam engine because hey when it's slightly out of sync the arm flexes a little bit it readjusts it's you know the spin changes slightly things continue to work because if it didn't have the dynamics that were as if it had a model the thing wouldn't function it would just fall apart so i guess what we're all what's all being said here is that systems at different scales will behave as if they had a model even if they don't necessarily have a model in the sense of a person, like a person might have a conscious model from which they develop a plan or whatnot, but all these systems of varying scales and complexities still behave as if they had a model. They act to minimize the free energy as a consequence of you know being random dynamical systems that are self-maintaining.
4: Yeah, I think that's a really eloquently put. And actually, that, so this, this kind of underwrites some of the worries we had about the, the principle when we first started walking, uh, working on it, as, as kind of coming from a, an activist or a, a low road an activist this notion of kind of a, an explicit representationalism that you can, you, you can get in these models where the model is homo- homomorphic with the environment, right? And that doesn't, doesn't, it rankles people who've come from behavior-based robotics and, and stuff like this. But then to kind of realize that there's a, there's, it's a richer relationship between the internal and the ex- external that's being mirrored, right? It doesn't have to be this uh, homomorphic mapping. And also mm-hmm. the, you know, the actions are deeply involved in carving out the world that you represent. You live in your umwelt, uh, you're a model of your umwelt, you're a model of regulating your umwelt, which is not, in, you know, is not just a, this static separation of the of the agent from its environment. There's this deep coupling, which, uh, which can, you know, which these kind of uh, mirrorings emerge from. But yeah, I think you you, you articulated it really well there.
2: Can, can we just... call um, t- Carl, t- any, any comments here?
0: No, I think we, you did a great yeah. job. I agree with Chris. Like that, yeah.
1: So I think we've got about 15 minutes left. So we'll we'll do two more topics. We'll end on structure learning and, and the practical implementations of the free energy principle. But I just wanted to touch on what you were talking about earlier, Maxwell, which is this notion of the boundaries being potentially vague or maybe even observer relative. Now, in your multi-scale paper, you did say, use the word ontological boundaries, I think. Um, and... I also wanted to talk about meaning. So there's the boundaries of cognition in the physical world. So we have this dynamical system and it kind of converges and we've got these nested uh, kind of hierarchy of, of boundaries. But then in a kind of Dennett sense, meaning emerges gradually and the meaning kind of depends on your perspective and the intentional stance also depends on your perspective so different agents could look at different phenomena going on in their physical environment and they could describe different meaning in their generative models so we seem to have this kind of weird two-tier system where no longer are we even saying that the boundaries the Markov boundaries are fixed they are potentially variable and then the way that the agents construct meaning is also observer dependent and all of this is kind of touching on what i was saying before with goals which is that the reason they emerge is because they are unintelligible. They're extremely complex. Do, do you see what I mean? So it, it, it feels like the reason why we need to have this high-resolution generative model is because, in principle, it would be impossible for us to explicitly program it.
0: So a few quick things about that. I mean, I think you're you're really identifying some of the key issues. Uh, I would first, so with respect to ontology, I would, uh, you know, distinguish ontology from metaphysics. Uh, Ontology is just talking about what kind of things are. So when we say that the boundaries are ontological, uh, what we're saying is we're trying to capture kind of features of the map in some sense and you know what we've argued uh, in a paper recently is that the free energy principle is metaphorically speaking a map of that part of the territory that behaves like a map um so uh i want to contrast this with metaphysics uh, in the sense that like this is all of this is a modeling approach this is a physics uh this isn't saying like once and for all these boundaries are here and crystallized and uh just you know are, are are there independently of you know the way that we are are experiencing or sampling or interacting with the world like that that kind of metaphysical stuff is not what's at stake. Um, yeah, so in, in the paper you're referring to, we describe I we describe these uh, Markov blankets as existential boundaries, uh, in the sense that they're both epistemological and ontological. They're ontological in the sense that they are definitional of what a thing is in this kind of physics-based approach if you can pick out a thing as a physical thing then it 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 ought it has to have this blanket structure and it's it's epistemological in the sense that it's this interface right like the the thing itself can only know the world and indeed we can only know the world the the thing through this boundary um Okay. So, like, this isn't meant to be a priori. It's it's sort of weird. It's in some sense, it's sort of like an a posteriori. It's like an empirically driven way to carve up the world. Um, that, that's but that's it, fine. Again, I mean, on
1: on that, I I, I think um, that that answers my question because there's always this um, confusion about whether we're talking about the map or the territory. And just to be clear, we are we are always talking about the map when we talk about these boundaries.
0: Yeah, the free energy principle is a map of the boundaries you can think of and and a map of what happens when things have boundaries that and so yeah that 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 is important to keep in mind like we don't want to engage in map territory fallacies uh the free energy principle is a model it's a scientific model and it's a map and it turns out to be the canonical way of modeling systems that are engaged in modeling so if maximum entropy is the canonical way of modeling physical systems in physics uh, it's it's the way of arriving at the most parsimonious model that generates uh you know some data set right uh well the free energy principle is equally a canonical way of modeling systems that also in turn seem to be engaged in this kind of modeling behavior but yeah it's it's a model it's a map uh you know it, th- this probably is not the final word and, uh, you know, we're we're uncovering some, you know, mathematical structure underneath the free energy principle and the principle of unitarity uh, and maximum caliber and all of this stuff that we're tentatively calling G theory for now in, in homage to M theory from string theory uh, physics. Uh, so yeah, uh, you know, as most scientific models, like the progress of science uh, means that things will probably change. Like, again, this isn't a metaphysics. This is uh, just a cohesive modeling approach that inherits from the physics of information and self-organization. I would quickly just point out that um, the... uh, These things, like, seem intrinsically related to observer dependence because they, they are in some deep sense. Uh, Carl's 2019 monograph, a particular, uh, a free energy principle for a particular physics, uh, ends on this idea that the free energy principle at core is a metrological statement, uh, where metrological means measure theoretic or relating to measurement. And it basically says, well, things that exist look as if they're constantly measuring themselves and like keeping themselves within certain bounds uh so this is and you know this is even clearer from the quantum information theoretic formulation where like literally what we're saying is that the free energy principle is a theory of observerness uh you know the the sort of the it from bit right like the it's thingness but from another perspective it's observerness which which are kind of the same thing i'm sure carl could say that again more eloquently than i um but at a high level, that's how I would respond to your point. Maybe Carl would like well, to give maybe, it a um,
2: go. maybe since we, yeah, the, Carl, you could do that. And then also, uh, since you're trying to decide if you're in an activist, you know, maybe um, what other questions do we need to ask for both of us actually to decide? You know, that we haven't that we haven't covered yet.
3: Yeah, we can we can ask Maxwell and Chris uh, to um um so just to pick up on that last exchange and come back to the free energy principle as being gloriously grey. Um, I think I like that because you know the the validity of that principle as a method. So you know, as a physicist, you'd read any principle as a method, something that you apply to something. Um. Uh, I think is is underwritten not um by its explanatory scope but by its internal consistency with other principles that that, that uh, people do apply. And um uh, just mentioned one. Um um I think one important example of that, you know, beyond the principles of um um least action or variational principles that, that underwrite for you know um say Richard Feynman's work. Um uh, I, i'm thinking of uh, ja 's maximum entropy principle, so uh Maxwell alluded to that in terms of maximum caliber so maximum entropy of uh, distributions over states just now becomes transformed into distributions over um paths when you move from uh, when you move uh to the maximum caliber uh, principle so the maximum caliber principle is just a max ent- uh, a Jamesian max entropy principle for a pathological for formulation. Um, and I think that's important to realize the free energy principle just is that. It is just a constrained maximum caliber uh, principle or maximum entry principle. And you may ask, well, where did the constraints from come from? That's just the generative model. It's just the description of the characteristic states of pullback attractor that constitutes the goals we we're just talking about. So um, you know, if you remember, free energy is just the um, expected energy, the constraint part, plus the entropy. Um, and therefore, um, when you're now drilling down on the constraint part, what, where, where does that come from? It's just a description of the pullback attractor of the characteristic states of the system that you're trying to uh, trying to understand. So I don't really look at the free energy principle as something terribly new. It's been implicit there all the time. It's just people using slightly different words for different concepts. So I think that's I don't of why I'm saying this, but it, it, it seemed important to say um, and Max what were you just talking about because there was a link in terms of uh, uh, were you maybe
0: leading into the metrological aspects the self-measurement is I
3: thought that was really important yes that's right so just looking backwards um, what, you know, what is the, the sibling of the or, or, or um, yeah, the sibling of the free energy principle um of um in the, in the past century in the past say, uh, t- few decades i think that would be the maximum entropy principle constrained maximum entropy principle looking forwards what would be the bedfellows of the free energy principle and i think i think that the that um metrological or relational um uh thing is vitally important i and you know i i, I love the work of um um Carlo Rovelli and and his work with you know quantum uh, relational approaches to quantum mechanics which is all about relationships and of course how do you how do you um quantify a relationship well it's just in terms of the interaction the coupling which is going to be a sparse coupling it is just a measurement it is just an observation so inference measurement synchronization sparse coupling they're all the same thing and i so I, I i think that what will hopefully happen is that somebody will write down a math possibly dalton will write down um, a calculus that says all of these things are just the same way of looking at it oh, and i read yesterday because uh, i had to because i was reviewing this paper for synthese about ontic structural realism ontic structural realism and it seems to me that that is basically philosophers having discovered the same um, underlying fabric. That the the reality is in the measurement, but it's a, the measurement of how we relate to each other via that measurement of of of, of each other or things measuring other things it, purely in terms of of their relationships. So I I think that that you know there there is a lot of if you like. Um, work to be done from the point of view of FE, free energy principle theorists in consolidating the links to what has gone in terms of things like maximum entropy principle and what is to come in terms of, say, quantum loop gravity or Chris Field's um, quantum information, theoretic treatment of um, holographic screens in the Markov blanket. And you know, uh, um, at each point, the FEP will become grayer because it will be less easy to discriminate it from everything else that stood the test of time.
1: Uh, Chris, do you have any comments on that? You're on
4: mute. You're on mute. Yeah. <laughs>
1: You're on mute, Chris.
4: Sorry. Uh, so yeah, I think I'll leave it there. It's a bit too deep into the philosophy for me, and we've got two experts here, so I'll 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 pass.
1: <laughs> one, wonderful. And um, to my point earlier, I mean, we we won't go into it now. But um, one of, I guess, my perspective is it all seems like epistemology to me rather than on, ontology, and maybe we can um, debate that a little bit more a bit later on. But um, as our uploads are all quite slow, and I want to check that we secure this beautiful interview, I'm going to cut it off at at this point. But gentlemen, it's been an absolute honour. Thank you so much for coming on MLS. Yeah, it means you. so much to me.
0: Genuinely, oh, so always a pleasure, coach. gentlemen. This is uh, always great fun.
1: Beautiful. Fun. Beautiful. Me? Yeah, I always enjoy this <laughs>